0: I was in the middle of nowhere, very small town. During the evening, myself and my ZSL colleague went to a bar to go and have a beer, sat there chatting, and then two blokes in leather jackets came and sat at our table. There's only four chairs at the table. They came and (laughs) sat right at our table and uh, said to me, what are you doing here? And and so I said, I work for ZSL. I'm just here with my colleague. And he said, well, we're keeping an eye on you and picked his walkie-talkie up and left with his colleague just little things like that sort of make you twitch a bit in lots of places it would be quite easy for something bad to happen
1: so i'd like to welcome a friend of mine to the cognitas global podcast this week uh ironically we were both in the police at the same time and uh, though our paths never crossed uh and yet they have crossed several times uh since we both left um i welcome christian plowman uh christian Perhaps I can ask you to give me a brief introduction of yourself, uh, where you're working now for uh, all our listeners. Your current Absolutely. employment, if if I may. Absolutely.
0: Uh, Cheers, Laurie. Thank you very much for having me. First off, um, yeah, I'm Christian Plowman. Um, and as Laurie said, I'm a former Metropolitan Police Detective. And I currently work in the very unusual world of uh, trying to combat transnational wildlife trafficking. And I have a specific focus on Central um, and Western Africa, um, particularly the francophone French speaking countries uh, where lots of illegal wildlife products like ivory and and, uh, pangolin scales emanate from.
1: And we'll talk about this in great detail. And and, uh, as you know, this this podcast isn't all about me or the company. It's about the people that I work with now and have an interesting life uh, and a story to tell. Um, I think if we move on from our police days, Christian, I retired in 2010, I think you 2011. Yeah. Um, You know, what I try and hope to do for our listeners as well is bring some experience of maybe transitioning out of public service into the private sector. Uh, It's challenging, as you know. I mean, both of us have done it. Um, And there are many more people that will follow us. Hopefully some of whom will maybe pick up some tips from this.
0: Um,
1: So 2011. Uh, you you leave the police voluntarily. I yep. hasten to add, uh, as same as yes. this. <laughs> um, yes. And uh, unlike many in this current climate, I'm sad to say. But uh, so you choose another career. Um. Your. Uh. And it takes you where?
0: Well, I think um, I was motivated to leave because I'm inherently a sort of nomadic person, and my first foray into the the real world, as I refer to it, uh, was with a very big uh, global sports company working in the realm of uh, brand protection, which effectively is looking at um, trying to uh, intervene in the um, manufacture and movement of counterfeit goods, which obviously causes a significant potential financial loss um, uh, to, to these huge corporations. Um and i i didn 't work for them for very long for lots of different reasons um, and one of those reasons was interestingly this uh, this transitional period um, and it's a it 's a really uh interesting point around leaving leaving an institution like the police um, very similar um, i would imagine to leaving an institution like the military and going into the real world and trying to bring the skills and experience that you have from the police uh, and apply those to um, corporate or or private sector situations. Um, And I found that, you know, I'll be honest with you, I found it extremely challenging. Um, It was one of the most challenging elements of it was was the fact that in the real world, you're probably given sort of slightly more leeway and autonomy. um, And that's weirdly something that's very, very difficult to get used to.
1: Did you have in mind what you wanted to do when you left or or not? I mean, you've gravitated towards something that is very law, maybe law enforcement centric. Yeah. Um, You know, was that because you wanted some initially just to get a job or or, or did it interest you? I mean, how did that all happen?
0: I mean, that initial initial job that I had straight out of the police, it was for a a particularly well-known brand who I'm not going to name, but I'm a big fan of them. Um, that was a big motivating factor. But yeah, you're right. It, it, I think it, it's very normal for, for having served in the police to go into some sort of law enforcement-esque investigative sort of compliance type role. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Um, it's very similar to, to to what I'm doing now, and it's very natural to do so. But I think my, my career change motivation was probably um, influenced quite significantly by wanting to, Wanting to see a bit more of the world, not necessarily physically. I don't necessarily mean travel, although there, there, there was travel involved. Um, but just to you know, open open one's eyes up to to other things, and and you know, to engage with and meet other people who are not necessarily from a police background. That's always an eye opening thing because we traditionally tend to congregate together. Uh, our social lives are together in the police. It's it's almost quite rare to have very good friends who are outside of that police network. So I think I was I just wanted to you know I just wanted to do something different um, or experience something different, as weird as that sounds. Because it, like I say, it's very similar. It was a very similar policey type role.
1: You know, I, I get that, and I, I'm I'm cautious of using the word institutionalised. But you know, when you are in the police, no matter what your level of life experience. Um, it's a different world outside you know uh, uh, and since 2010 i've traveled to personally traveled to 37 countries where i work now you know um I, i had traveled within the police in my role as a financial investigator but i i wasn't aware and hadn't seen what i've seen that's really humbled me actually in many ways and enlightened me since i left the police and i think actually um, you know in many ways, I probably wish in some respects I would have benefited that beforehand, but i didn 't really have the choice yeah. you know I was stuck in it for the duration um some people like yourself um you know seek seek other horizons and um so where did that take you after after that then uh into the brand stuff? How long was it before you gravitated towards the area that you now work in?
0: I mean I spent another few years doing very similar sort of uh, uh corporate loss prevention, sort of security type stuff um, with, you know, a very minor uh, um, a minor sort of sway towards the investigative side of things. And they were all for very big companies, big brands. Um, and I did not, I have to be honest, I didn't get the job satisfaction that I wanted. Um, there's a big difference between, you know, it sounds very trite and clichéd, but unfortunately that's the sort of person i am um there's there's very little satisfaction in um, protecting somebody's profits or protecting a corporation's profits compared to having an impact on a, a human being's life in some way shape or form um and so the job satisfaction wasn't there and that sort of causes quite a nasty vicious circle of demotivation and you know i wasn't i wasn't getting uh, getting what i needed uh, from from that sort of work. And I sort of was floundering somewhat um, career-wise and um, an old criminal intelligence analyst um, from West End Central Police Station contacted me through LinkedIn in about uh, uh, late 2015 um, and they were working for Interpol um, looking at the illegal wildlife trade. They were based in, in Lyon in France at Interpol headquarters. Um, And they said, uh, we've got a role open in Kenya. I think you'd be perfect for it. Do you fancy applying? Um, So I agreed. I applied, went through the selection process. Um, And in January 2016, I flew out to Nairobi to go and work as a criminal intelligence officer for Interpol, um, looking very specifically at the trade in ivory and rhino horn across eastern Africa. So maybe five or six countries within East Africa. Um, so that was my first introduction into the the illegal wildlife trade, um, and it was also a, <laughs> it was also a very interesting education into how uh, a, a a bureaucratic organisation like Interpol operates. It, it was a real um, jumping in at the deep end in respect of you know uh, transnational politics, intergovernmental relations, diplomacy, that sort of thing. Um, but it was a it was a fantastic learning curve. Um and I I spent nine months working uh, working there
1: at Interpol. And but you had you've had some other zoological experience in, in London, haven't you? Was that That was, was after. That after? Oh right, yeah. okay. So yeah. well, tell me a little bit about that. I should say by the way, that uh, I know since I've met you I never really would imagine to see you in a suit and tie, um and, <laughs> and anything anything other than I'm packing a bag's ready to fly off to Africa tomorrow. Um, In fact, I'd even go so far as to say that I remember somebody wrote on um, someone's appraisal uh, that they had when I was in the CID. It wasn't mine. This man would make a new suit look old. And I just always feel that about you, actually. (laughs) That's the reputation.
0: That's that's the reputation I had. Uh, His Honour Judge uh, Motar Singh at Southwark Crown Court once said to me, um, uh, um, is this the first time you've worn a suit, officer? (laughs) Um, i I remember i remember that i had a i had a reputation for looking particularly scruffy i think it's fairly well well documented that reputation but yes indeed um i mean one of the when when i worked in nairobi it was a requirement by the the head of the bureau there that we wore um, suits and ties and one of the first rather pleasurable things that i did when i arrived in nairobi was um had a i had a visit from a kenyan tailor who came to the office Measured me up, and I paid about the equivalent of a hundred quid for three three-piece suits, um, and w- wore them with pride for the next nine months.
1: Well, all I can say is, you know, that reminds me of when I went into a shop to buy a suit the other day, and I said to them, "Have you got a suit that fits me?" And they said, "If some, if we've got a suit that fits you, someone's getting a sack." But, you know, <laughs> you, <have> to, <laughs> you can use that one, mate. Um, so. so You've immersed yourself in this world where you are suitably attired for um, f- for this quite a different world, really, from what you were doing. And, you know, as we know, it's, I don't know, put a figure on it, 23 billion, do they say, in terms of um, money, reven- revenue generated from this wildlife trafficking. Um, it must have been quite a shock, actually, some of the stuff that you were seeing, some of the stuff that you were learning and the scale. Of the crimes that were actually relatively unknown to you know to the majority of us,
0: yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, it is shocking. I mean, that's a that's an oft quoted figure from a from a United Nations report, um, and and it certainly you know holds true. It, it's a very very significant criminal enterprise globally, um, and certainly. But when I started in 2016, um, for example, the, I mean the price of rhino horn per kilo um was was more than the price of a kilo of heroin um so it's a you know it's it was a very lucrative trade it's still a significantly lucrative trade um and we consistently see sort of an uh analogies with the drugs trade um transnational trafficking of, of wildlife is no different to transnational trafficking of, of any other illegal commodity um and and it's you know it's it can be very disparate and disorganised, but certainly at the upper echelons of the chain are generally quite well organised. Um, and the 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 interesting thing is that when you when you compare it to the drugs trade, it's very similar in that at the very very bottom of the trade chain, the individuals who are involved in it are very often motivated by by poverty. They get involved they get involved in it out of necessity, effectively. Um, which is very similar to, you know, to the drugs trade. And they're also, you know, they're replaceable. They're individuals or groups who are replaceable. So if they get targeted and arrested by law enforcement, which happens fairly often, you know, that somebody else will, will take their place. Um, but being being exposed to criminality on a completely different continent, and I've never, ever been to Africa before, apart from a holiday in, in uh, Tunisia, um, I mean, it was eye-opening to say the least. Uh, the way things, the way things are done, uh, the way that the authorities operate, the way that criminals operate, um, is you know is is a real a real eye-opener, and it's certainly certainly ex- an experience to be party to and, uh, and and involved in in that sort of um, that sort of crime fighting. That's for sure.
1: And I know, and we'll return to this, but, you know, I I guess I should say, you know, we've worked for Interpol, as as you know, uh, delivering with your assistance a whole program of wildlife crime uh, investigator training. Um, And also for your current organization, the Wildlife Conservation Trust, with whom we continue to work. Um, It certainly opened our our eyes to some of the issues um, and what we're learning and, and the degree and the scale of what really goes on. But I think, you know, one of the one of the sad things is is that you know, the countries in which all this is prevalent don't really have the capacity or the capability to to deal with this. I mean, they're relatively poorly trained. I mean, all of this is trying to be remedied through technical assistance by international donors, but it's really down to a tremendous amount of hard work that the non governmental organisations such as yourself, Wildlife Conservation Trust and other organisations that the the Royal Conservation Trust and many many others are doing really to try and intervene in this in this world but let's just yeah. return to um to you again so you you working with interpol and then you come back to london to do some work at the zoo yeah i
0: mean my interpol, the interpol work was on a on a short term contract um for a particular project and that that came to an end Um, But obviously, being the astute young man that I was, I made sure that I had something to to go back to. Um, So I went to work for the Zoological Society of London, ZSL, uh, which I would always just refer to as London Zoo. Um, And I worked there as their law enforcement advisor for about uh, three years. Um, So unbeknown to many people, London Zoo have uh, conservation programs across the world and projects across the world um supporting uh, uh, various conservation initiatives to to uh, uh, to protect endangered species and in endangered landscapes um and again uh, th- th- this was speaking from the perspective of tran- transitioning from a, from the police to to the private sector so i mean when i worked for interpol it's you know it's a, a fairly policey organisation um, the vast majority of staff there are either serving or former police officers, or they have experience within a, a policing context. Whereas going, going to an NGO is, is, uh, is almost as difficult as transitioning from the police to the private sector. It's a completely different ballgame. Um, and really, as a, as a former cop being employed by an NGO, you are, you know, you are the, 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 the the sort of um, point of contact for, for absolutely anything um law enforcement intelligence criminal justice related completely um nobody else understands that world because everybody i mean the people that i worked with at london zoo and the people that i work with now are uh, quite frankly incredible in their fields um easily the sing you know the, the most intelligent people i've ever encountered who are ridiculously intelligent extremely committed and passionate to their particular subject or their particular role um, and it's it's quite um it can be quite overwhelming to be to be amongst um amongst people like that and i think that that's something that takes time to sort of come to terms with um before you sort of realize well hold on actually these guys are experts in you know lion behavior but i'm actually an expert in um i don't know intelligence gathering or whatever it might be um and you sort of begin to find your find your comfort zone um and and understand the niceties of of an ngo and how it works you mentioned already you know it's the fight against wildlife crimes largely supported by by donor funding um, and a a ridiculous proportion of my job um, yeah. <laughs> although I, I do enjoy it for the most part um, a ridiculous proportion of it is is you know writing uh, funding bids and funding proposals and writing reports for donors and liaising with donors and things like that so um that's that's a really important aspect of it um, um, unfortunately essential but um I think my yeah my introduction into into that world with London zoo was again another another door opened, and I got to like you, I got to visit places that I would never ever have dreamed of going to, like the you know isolated forests in Cameroon in the middle of nowhere um in Benin Burkina faso Niger, all of these places that some of which are on the news at the moment for um, for, for various reasons. But, uh, yeah, I'd never have dreamt of, you know, even stepping foot in these places. And it, and so the experience was, was phenomenal.
1: And you have a great advantage working in the region you do because I know you speak fluent French. Uh, when you've worked uh, for us and with us, you've delivered in fluent French, which has been an enormous asset and must be a tremendous asset in terms of building trust and confidence in the people that you're dealing with as well. But I I, I do want to give a big shout-out to the WCS, actually, because we went to Vietnam uh, earlier on this year and worked with uh, Trung Pham and his team. And I've got to say, I found them to be some of the most professional people that I've worked with, Uh, their attention to detail just around all the logistical arrangements and everything that they did for the event, uh, notwithstanding the programs that they have, uh, you know, in progress for uh, people to educate people is absolutely fantastic and what the work they, they do and those those people in other organizations should just not be underestimated um, no, and i've so got to say you know going forward i'm very happy to give my donation to um to those organizations knowing what i do now so your nomadic yeah. feet got the better of you and you, you decided to to move on again from the zoological.
0: Yeah, um, I moved moved from uh, moved from London Zoo and went to work for WCS Wildlife Conservation Society, which is a big American conservation organization based in New York. Uh, they work in about fifty odd countries across the world. Um, I mean, they're you know in the conservation world, they're they're a very very well respected organization um, with considerable uh, influence and presence, um, which is always always very handy. Um, and my my initial foray into um, uh, wildlife trafficking with WCS was was focused almost entirely on uh, the Republic of the Congo and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, the two different Congos. Um, and and I was in charge of a, of, of uh, steering a project looking at um, the illegal trade in. Um, in wild meat. So the meat from protected species like uh, gorillas and chimpanzees and apes and pangolins and things like that. So it was a very specific project that I worked on with them for a year Um, and then that sort of evolved very naturally into um, effectively what I do now which is I'm the counter wildlife trafficking coordinator for all of our projects across Africa uh, which involves a lot of liaison with our colleagues who you mentioned in Vietnam and other Southeast Asian countries, and to a lesser extent, our colleagues in in Latin America. Um, and yeah, my yeah, my job is to guide and advise and coordinate, hence the job title, uh, our, our counter wildlife trafficking activities in in all of those all of those countries across uh, across Africa. Um, and yes, French has come in very handy, Laurie. I tell you. <laughs> um, I always, I always say that if, if I did, uh, to be honest, if I didn't speak French, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing this job. Uh, but I am something of uh, an anomaly. Apparently, I work with a lot of um, French uh, French colleagues, um, and there's a couple in particular who are former French French military who I speak with very, very regularly because our, our paths cross because of our work quite a lot. Um, and yeah they find it very amusing to encounter an english person who can speak french uh, because East something London french yeah that's right yeah, yeah but um, i've got have t- got a Thames mead accent apparently
1: <laughs> let me um let me ask you this on a more serious note um some of the countries that you worked in are quite volatile and uh, mm. you know i i you know i know somebody that i work with not engaged uh not on one of my projects who was shot dead in Somalia a few years ago, which is a very sad thing uh, whilst he was in, he and a colleague, UN colleague expert. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm talking about, we're, we're over there to look at some uh, anti-Money laundering stuff in Pirates. You know, you travel to these places. Um, how, how do you feel about it? You know, I mean, it's a risky job, isn't it? Um, yeah, have I you mean, any close close shaves? or? Yes, yeah, it
0: is It is risky um, and, and it's sort of in, It's even more risky, I think, and certainly I've experienced, it's more risky when, um, you know, the authorities that you encounter who you're not necessarily working with are aware of precisely what it is that you're doing. So even just the fact that you are an ex-cop or you're working in counter-trafficking could be cause for concern. Um, I, I mean, I think I first... I mean, one of the encounters I had in Cameroon was, I've had several encounters in Cameroon, in fact, but a, a couple of them were sort of, not they weren't sort of physically threatening, but they were situations where you thought mm, something bad could happen here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, getting getting stopped at roadblocks um, uh, by armed individuals who don't have any insignia or uniform or anything like that. And they're quite obviously under the influence of stuff and, you think this could all go pear-shaped, um, and you have to sort of have you have to have your wits about you. I think um, you have to be really circumspect about um, what you say to people when you're traveling, um, and you know who you engage with, what you're doing, that sort of thing. Um, I I I always have a sort of fairly generic, almost like a sort of cover story for when I'm traveling. Um, I mean, it's it's easy to come across as a a benign visitor when you work for a conservation organisation so that's generally generally
1: not a problem at all um but yeah, cause you're good uh, currency for a kidnapping gang of course aren't you yeah yeah uh, absolutely you know, absolutely especially
0: others. for yeah for a big american organisation yeah. yeah yeah i mean you put you 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 do the job and you find yourself in locations or or um in in places where Things could go wrong. If things went wrong, they would go very wrong. Um, I I remember being in in Cameroon when I worked for for ZSL. um, And I went to a, I was in the middle of nowhere, and I can't really articulate what I mean by that for your listeners. I literally mean in the middle of nowhere. Uh, It's a very small town. The nearest city is 800 kilometers away, and it takes 15 hours to drive there. There's no other way of getting there. Um, and I, I was doing some training um, and during the evening, myself and my ZSL colleague, Cameroonian National, we went to a bar to go and have a beer. Uh, this bar was fairly big. There was probably 15 tables there, loads of empty chairs. No one else was in there, just me and my colleague. We sat down, had a beer, uh, sat, sat there chatting and then two blokes in leather jackets, bearing in mind it's very hot in Cameroon, two dudes in leather jackets walked in. Um, And they came and sat at our table. There's only four chairs at the table. They came and sat right at our table. One of them just plonked like a walkie-talkie on the table um, and uh, said to me, what are you doing here? And and so I said, I work for ZSL. I'm just here with my colleague. We're doing some training. Um, And he said, well, we're keeping an eye on you and picked his walkie-talkie up and left with his colleague. Um, and my colleague subsequently said well, they are obviously the, Kem- they're, they're, they're the Cameroonian intelligence services um, who are local um, and they are very intrigued as to precisely what you would do because we were close to a border area and there was a sensitive military installation nearby and stuff like that. Just, but just little things like that um, sort of make you, make you twitch a bit because in lots of places, you know, uh, I don't, and I don't mean to generalise, but in lots of places, the rule of law is not as uh, effectively applied as it might be in in places that we are more familiar with. Let's say, so it would be quite easy for something something bad to happen.
1: Was the issue with those two guys the fact they never bought you a drink before they left, or? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it was not the uh, it was not the CID way. <laughs> I
1: was very disappointed in them. Let me um, let me ask you, perhaps, so just to contextualise some of the issues around trafficking and, and the scale of it. I mean, we're we're doing some work for WCS at the moment. We're putting together a case, a true case study as a learning exercise. And you know, when I look at it, there was a container of like three tons of lions' bones, as an example. You know, just give give the listeners some idea of the type of scale of trafficking and and what it's being used for, and maybe even where it's going. I mean, you just would not comprehend some of this stuff that's being smuggled.
0: No, absolutely not. All the scale of it, indeed. I mean, generally, what so the vast majority of trafficked wildlife products end up in Southeast Asia or China, which is where the demand is. Um, and there is a belief in many countries... Uh, and I'm being very generalistic here. There's a belief in many countries that things like lion bones or lion fat or rhino horn or pangolin scales have some sort of mystical medicinal quality, which they don't. That's a, that's a, a fact, a scientific fact. Um, but to give you an idea of the of the, the, the sort of regularity and the scale of movement of these products, um, we. We were involved very recently in, um, on, on a couple of occasions in Nigeria, in some very small scale seizures. Um, and when I say small scale, I'm talking between 50 and 150 kilos of pangolin scales. Um, and for for us, that's a small scale seizure. If, if I said to you, oh, we, if, if I was in, I don't know, National Crime Agency, and I said, oh, we've just intercepted 50 kilos of cocaine, that'd be a, a bit of a result, I would suggest. Um whereas you know pangolin scales and ivory and that sort of stuff is it's at the very lower end of the scale so lots of times these interventions are made at the very bottom of the trafficking chain Um and all of these products will generally get stockpiled in urban centers often near port cities or within port cities and they will be um amalgamated until a container can be filled and i'm talking about those big shipping containers where they'll be hidden amongst uh more legitimate um, goods uh, and the bill of lading, for example, will say, "Oh, this is legitimate timber. here's the permit for the timber, which will often have been corruptly obtained anyway um, and then it's exported out to um, uh, to Southeast Asia by boat um, now we only a bit like other crime, we only ever hear about the big the big seizures um when when they occur. Um, but to put it put it into context um, it, it it would be a reasonable thing to estimate that those interventions or those seizures represent probably about five percent of the trafficked goods going across uh, going from Africa to asia um, and if you think that um, you know a container a container load of lion bones or a container load of pangolin scales represents um thousands if not tens of thousands of animals um and you get some idea and that's only you know that's only five percent of of the possible movement of contraband that gives you an idea of the scale of the the scale of the problem um so it is you know it's huge people are making a lot of money out of it um and we see you know networks that are involved in wildlife trafficking are also involved in other shady shenanigans as well that's you know, that's that's normal in the world of crime. Um, but ultimately, people are making, you know, people are making a lot of money out of it. And, you know, from a more benign conservation perspective, the loss of lots of these species is a significant contributor, not only to the loss of biodiversity, um, but also to things like the spread of zoonotic diseases um, and things like that. So, you know, it's, you know, it's not just, poachers killing elephants every now and then and oh dear, poor elephant, it's it's the the impact or potential impact is is so much more significant f- for the globe as a whole. Um so yeah it's a it's an important thing.
1: And and what a lot of people would probably not realise um is that you know they'd sit in the UK thinking that there are these jurisdictions would have perhaps a a police force or other agencies that were uh, competent in dealing with this because it's a crime that is wholly relevant to their jurisdiction. When in truth, you know, what we're battling is, um, you know, historically low investment, you know, poor capacity, poor capability, all of which is is slowly being addressed. And uh, corruption, huge yeah. level of corruption, which actually, when you're working against the enemy within, makes it even more difficult. And, and that in yeah. itself, Raises potential dangers for those that are working in that organisation. Uh, you know, we we could uh, discuss this issue uh, all day. It's so huge, um, and I hope maybe we'll have another opportunity to to do another one of these. But if I was to ask you, you know, what what could the rest of the world do? What could people do to try and assist in mitigating this type of crime and the damage it's doing to the environment? Um, i know there's no simple answer but you know what what would you say would help
0: there isn't a simple answer but i think certainly from the from a sort of global north perspective i e you know the, the the west as it were um i think it's it's important to continually underline the fact that this this is criminality um and it should be treated in the same vein as you know other horrifying uh, uh, criminal activity. You know the trafficking of firearms and humans and things like that. It, it's it's at the same level and will potentially have the same impact. Um, there is a huge sort of sway at the moment to to, uh, to um, addressing this type of criminality under the umbrella of uh, either environmental crime or nature crime, um, and and to, to link that in with uh, things like. Uh, the sort of issues around the climate and things like that, regardless of what your your opinions may be of that. I think that's a, a positive thing to um, to couch it in terms of uh, th- the sort of global threat to, to the planet as a whole. Um, this is not just a, a, an African issue around poaching, this is not just a Southeast Asian or Chinese issue around demand, it's an issue for everybody um, and it should be termed as such. Um, And I think encouraging people to think of it, um, and this is something I'm a big advocate for, much to the chagrin of my conservation colleagues. I think couching it in the terms of criminality rather than, you know, the the focus on the on the animals, on the cuddly elephants and whatnot. um, I think it's important. It's important to do that. Uh, People's hackles need to be raised and people need to to sort of start getting very aware and angry about it, to be honest, um, so that they can voice their support and they can advocate for um, more assistance, for stronger legislation um, and, you know, for, for generally for awareness around the world.
1: Well, what I will say is we're going to put up some links on this uh, podcast and uh, on, on the video uh, so that people can maybe read a report, have an idea what your organisation does uh, as well, Christian. But what I'd like to do is just thank you for being with us for this short time, just to raise some of the issues. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your own journey toward this. I know you do an unbelievable job uh, for that organisation, and it's been a pleasure to work with you on the projects that we have uh, jointly worked on, uh, and I'm sure we're going to be uh, doing a lot more work in the future. But uh, thank you very much, and um, stay safe in your travels. Thanks very much, Laurie. Uh, The pleasure
0: is all mine. Thank you very much. Cheers.